Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a professor of Greek, Latin, history, and patristics at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton, Nebraska. His master's degree is in classical Greek and Latin, and his doctorate is in the Fathers of the Church. He has published on the Fathers of the Church and on contemporary church history, particularly Vatican II in the liturgy in the 20th century. His most recent publication is Death Comes for the Cathedrals, a translation of Marcel Proust's 1904 Lament, that the cathedrals of France might no longer house the liturgy for which they were built. He has taught many courses for the Institute of Catholic Culture and for our Magdala Apostolate Sisters. So it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the Institute, Dr. Pepino. Thank you, Kelsey. So the councils, okay, everyone knows about, well, or do they? We live under the shadow of the most recent council. You may have heard of it, Vatican II Council, and... Uh, in a way, I mean, it's not every generation of Christians who live under the shadow, as we do, of a relatively recent council, 60 years now. I mean, from the point of view of the church, that's really small. But we're going to cast our gaze all the way back to the beginnings of the councils, which is to say, well, Jerusalem with the apostles, and then we're going to look at the first seven ecumenical councils over well, tonight and then uh, the next two meetings, uh, two weeks in all, really, from, from, from beginning to end. And it's important for us to do that, I think, uh, to put that taproot, as Father Hezekiah said, into the ground. On the one hand, to understand how important councils are in the life of the church. Some people have compared the councils to the heartbeat of the church nearly, and also to understand that it's not because we happen to be to live close to the most recent one that the most recent one is necessarily the most important of the councils. In fact, I'll just say a quick aside here. There were some theologians at Vatican II who said, you know, theologians of the 21st century may not count Vatican II as among the great councils of the church. Who knows? So in other words, we're really going to pan out and go back to the beginning and look at a bunch of other councils. So councils are important for us. 
They're important also because the council is where the bishops of the world assemble to discuss important topics regarding what the church teaches. And they do so, of course, in some way uh, with the Holy Father. Now, the the Pope. Now, there are all sorts of councils and synods, by the way. They don't all have the same weight. The Council of Jerusalem is important, of course, because it's inspired. It's part of the uh, Book of Acts. But otherwise, even after the death of St. John in the early church, there were little local councils and synods all over the place. And it makes sense. Of course, bishops want to get together and discuss uh, uh, problems that interest them all. And they could be councils in a province or just in one single diocese. And in fact, just to uh, clarify some terms, so we had Vatican II Council from uh, 62 to 65, and now we have a kind of a perpetual synod of bishops. In fact, the 16th synod of the bishops, or general assembly it's called, is taking place soon. It's the one on synodality, I think Father uh, Hezekiah's talk, but those are not ecumenical councils at all. And uh, you can kind of take them all even, frankly. Now, so we have 21 councils from one of the councils we'll look at today, which takes place in 325 in a town called Nicaea, not far from Constantinople. And the 21st is Vatican II. So that's a lot of councils. But the first seven have an importance all their own. And then among the first seven, the first four also constitute a subgroup that are really foundational for us to understand our faith. So those original ones are all, all they form a unit Y. They're all, from a material point of view anyway, convoked by the Roman emperor or the Byzantine emperor. And when I say they convoked materially by him, I mean to say that he's the one who pays for the invitation letters and who pays for the council. All of them are held in the East, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. And in some towns, more than one council occurs. And the first four, that's Nicaea in 325, Constantinople one in 381, Ephesus in 430, and Chalcedon in 451, St. Gregory the Great, who's Pope in the year 600, okay? He says, I believe in those four councils as I do in the four gospels. So that's how important they come to be in his view. Now, they're not inspired, but they are that important in the view of St. Gregory. And the reason why is that those early councils treat of things like the Trinity and the incarnation, these are dogmatic councils about foundational stuff. And it's thanks to these councils that we have a really good idea of what the actual tradition is regarding who God is and who Christ is. And that's why they were so important. And as I mentioned today, tonight, we're going to look at some principles. I hope it's not too dry. I'll try to bring in some examples to liven it up. We'll look at the Council of Jerusalem very quickly. And then Nicaea in 325, so we're going to skip three centuries, roughly, two and a half centuries. And then the Council of Constantinople in 381, that's tonight. And then next week, we'll look at Ephesus and Chalcedon. 
also very important, and Constantinople II. And in our third meeting, we'll look at the last two of these first seven councils, and we'll end with the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 787, and that's the council that defended the fittingness of venerating icons. So that's kind of the sweep of what we're going to be looking at today. All right, now, why should we pay attention to what bishops say when they get together and talk about these things? When they're assembled in a council like this, together with the Pope? Well, one of the reasons, well, there's an obvious reason, and it's, a re it's this. If all the bishops of the world, or a substantial representation of them, and the Pope get together, and they declare that the church teaches a specific doctrine, they're not going to be wrong. Because if they were wrong in stating this, it would mean that Christ had abandoned his church and that the gates of hell had prevailed against her. So there's kind of a rational reason why they're probably not going to make a mistake. So that's one reason. But also our Lord himself told them, look, I'm going to be with you always. I'm going to send you the paraclete and other things besides too. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, if this applies to a family saying the rosary, how much more does it apply to a delegation from all the dioceses of the world or close to it in union with the Pope in some way? And we see early conciliar acts in the Bible. So in the first book of Acts, in fact, when it comes to picking a replacement for Judas, remember, the apostles are there, minus Judas, obviously. The brethren are there, meaning disciples. There's about 120 people there. And Peter the Pope stands up and says, we need to deal with the replacement of Judas. And they proceed to a vote, and they determine what they're going to do. Likewise, in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, the twelve take the decision to ordain deacons. That's another conciliar act. But the most famous one in the book of Acts is the Council of Jerusalem. Now, you'll remember what happens there. And by the way, what's interesting about the Council of Jerusalem is that in some way it sets the pattern for future councils. What happened is this. Some of the, well, everyone's a convert, but some of these Christian converts who had been Pharisees before their conversion kept some of their pharisaical habits. And one of them was to say, well, to, to be engrafted into the old olive tree, by which I mean when a Gentile is baptized and becomes part of the people of God, well, certainly would he not need to be uh, circumcised? And they start spreading this notion around. And to a lot of people, of course, that makes perfect sense. Well, of course, yes, he, he should. Uh, these people should be circumcised. And so there's a council. And again, Peter speaks first. Then James rises and gives another speech, kind of confirming what Peter said. And then as a council, they come to the decision, no, converts from the nations do not need to be circumcised to become Christians. The decision is made, and then they send a letter off to Antioch to inform the people there. And the people of Antioch, they can, you can tell the taste that they rejoice. Lots of converts over there. And that's typical of 
uh, councils as well, is that after you make the decisions, you inform the church of your decision so that everyone knows what was decided. And it, it kind of makes sense that that would happen. I mentioned other councils takes place, little council, regional council, simply to you know make decisions that affect everyone in a region. And so there's a council in Carthage in North Africa in 220 that we know of. There's one in Antioch in the 260s. There's one in the south of France in Arles in 306, and then again in 314. In other words, having bishops assemble to discuss problems of discipline, of teaching, and so forth, very common in the early church. Now, we need to get to a little bit of the dry stuff, namely, what is an ecumenical council? Now, the word council is obvious enough, but what do we mean by ecumenical? It pertains to the Greek word oikumene, which means that which is inhabited. Uh, and it's a, the full sentence is, is uh, he ekumenege, meaning the inhabited world. In other words, the idea is that all the bishops of the inhabited world, as far as the Christians of the day knew, come together. So it has a universal aspect. It applies to all of Christendom. Now, the formal definition we use today is this. The solemn, what is an ecumenical council? It is the solemn assembly of the bishops of the universe, oikumene, the world inhabited, gathered at the Roman pontiff's call and under his authority and presidency to deliberate and legislate in common topics of interest to all Christendom. Okay, so that's the definition. But as often with definitions, there are also distinctions that follow. And sometimes the meaning of the words is not quite as obvious as you might think at first glance. So it juridically represents the whole church. And so the Pope has to be there because he represents the church. But not all councils are fully ecumenical. This is kind of a surprising kink in history. But there are some ecumenical councils that are ecumenical only so far, meaning not all of the things they say and produce are considered part of the ecumenical council. Because sometimes a pope, when ratifying, the council will say, this and this yes, that no. Because sometimes the council fathers will try to pull a fast one and insert some pork, I think it's called, like pork bell, they insert this, a little cannon here, a little cannon there for their own benefit. And the pope says, no, not that, not that, not that. So, that, so it's not everything that is done is not necessarily conciliar. And sometimes, some of them not very well attended. And the first uh, Council of Constantinople, for example, did not have any Western bishops show up. So is that ecumenical? Not strictly speaking, but the Pope's ratification or acceptance of it as representing the whole church uh, supplies for that lack of universal attendance, you might say. And of course, I mean, you'll never get 100% of people there. So it has to be a moral uh, uh, universality, if you like. And I'm not going to get too far into the weeds, but I mentioned how these early councils are convoked by the emperor. And that's a question people ask, and rightly. Well, how can the emperor call? I mean, he's just an emperor. He's like a king. What does he have to do with religion, number one? And number two... What if we don't have an emperor? Could we not have a council then? And that's kind of the problem that affects some of our separated uh, Oriental Orthodox brethren. 
So, well, it has to be called by an emperor, but there's no emperor. So that you see, they're kind of stuck. No, no. Again, the emperor calls it, and I'm going to read you some of the actual um, uh, convocation texts or the way that the the, bit, the the emperor himself begins the council. It's pretty clear. Sometimes the emperor himself thinks his role is bigger than it really is. But ultimately, it has to be ratified by the church and by the pope. And that ratification supplies for the convocation. And we'll see how that works out in individual councils. So... We'll see how that works out. I mean, there's a lot. There are lots of theo theological discussion here. I'm going to uh, to skip. And so, to recapitulate, I'll say this about the first seven councils, or even more. For the first seven councils we're interested in, the material convocation is issued by the emperor, but the formal one comes from the pope. And it's the papal convocation which elevates an assembly of bishops to the status of an ecumenical council, whatever its numbers. Now, this convocation can be supplied at any time. We are going to see some councils are convoked right in the middle of them. Some are convoked in a way by being named ecumenical after the fact or being received as ecumenical after the fact by the church and the Pope himself. Um, but as for the material, I mean, until the Middle Ages, and even later, the Popes didn't have the means even to invite everyone. It had to be the government in a way that supplied the postal service and so forth and so on. So we might say, and we'll see this again, that the emperor has a primacy of honor. He's like the most honored layman who's there. He supplies, the, he supplies the servants. He supplies, I don't know, the cleaning ladies. He supplies the food and all the accommodations are supplied by the emperor. And he's, you know, thanked for this very much. But the papacy retains the primacy of authority. And most often, uh, they will do this through legates. Uh, they're not necessarily there in person. In fact, it's quite rare for the Pope to attend a council in his own person. Even Paul VI at Vatican II was very seldom present. And this is for good reason, is to allow the deliberations to, to happen freely. If the Pope's there, everyone's going to you know, mind his P's and Q's, and it's not going to be quite the same. All right, so now we're going to go, now that we've settled these things, let's take a look at the Council of Nicaea. Now, what's strange or interesting about the Council of Nicaea is how, in a way, it failed <laughs> at the outset. So, and I explain myself uh, by this. So now that we're getting into the history of a council, Nicaea, I have another small point to make. And this is the kind of thing that usually students discover when they go to college or maybe in the later years of high school, is that history is not in history books. This is what I mean by that. How do we know what happened? Or better, how does the, the person who wrote the history book, how does he know what happened? He wasn't there, right? There's, there's an important question here. And the answer to that is, we know what happened from the sources, from people who were there or people who have access to information. You really have to go to the sources. So if you're interested, I speak for the young people or even people of any age, if you want to be a historian, 
you have to get into the original sources, which means you're going to have to learn Greek and Latin or, or whatever. Study, you know, if you're going to study Chinese history, you have to learn ancient Chinese, all these things. And sometimes we have very little to go on. And for this Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council outside of the actual lifetime of the apostles, we do not have the minutes of the discussions or of the interventions. Uh, some of them are mentioned later in tradition. Some of the things are mentioned in later councils when people say, remember how in Nicaea so-and-so said this? So maybe they had the minutes back then. We don't. So what are our sources? Well, fortunately, some of the eyewitnesses of Nicaea wrote, and we have their writings. The great St. Athanasius, father of Orthodox, he was there. Eusebius, the church historian, who wrote, I have his volume here. Some of you may have this uh, Nicene and post-Nicene collection of the fathers of the church, which I recommend with some caveats. That's a discussion for another day. This Eusebius, a contemporary of this council, he wrote a church history. He wrote a life of Constantine the Great, and he wrote a speech in praise of Constantine. I'm going to read you some of him tonight. He's a bit of a, a fan sometimes a bit toady, in fact, okay, between uh, you and me, of Constantine, but he is an eyewitness and tells us what happened there, some of the things. And then later historians who had access maybe to the minutes, Philostorgus, Socrates, Sozomen, Theodoret, Rufinus, and others. So that's how we know. Now, at Jerusalem, we had these former Pharisees saying Gentiles must be circumcised, and a council assembled to say, no, they don't. For Nicaea, the error if you like, the mistake that occasions it is that there is a man in Alexandria, Egypt, whose name is Arius, A-R-I-U-S. He's a very popular preacher, and he's also a very ascetical person, very gaunt, thin, lives on lentils and brackish water. And this makes him very popular among Christians, or he must be, you know, he's a holy man. And he teaches a fundamental mistake re regarding the eternal word. Well, his fundamental mistake is that he does not believe that the word is eternal. This is called subordinationism. Think of the word subordination. He's a subordinationist. In other words, he says that the word of God or the son of God is not co-eternal with the father, and is not as, as divine as the Father. They, Arius understands the firstborn, Christ is called in the Bible, the firstborn of all creation. That means he's the first creature. So for them, the second person of the Trinity has a beginning in time, which means there was a time when he did not exist yet. God the Father, who was alone, created him kind of as a as a partner then to go on and create the rest of the universe. That is the error of Arius. It is called Arianism. There's no Y in it, it's with an I. So by the way, there's a mistake I sometimes hear. People seem to think that Arianism teaches that Christ was a mere man. Not true. He was more than a man for them. He had two natures. He had the nature of the man, and then he had this other pre-existent nature as word of God, but not fully divine nature. His, his nature was like God, but was not God from God. Do you see? By the way, I just quoted the creed, the creed to which we shall get, obviously. His bishop, of course, 
whose name is Alexander of Alexandria, reacts and says no. And he has little local, a local council of bishops in Egypt to say, Arius, you're wrong. Out. You are anathema. You are not to be touched. You are to be put outside. So Arius flees to Palestine, and he gets his message out to other bishops. Eusebius of Caesarea is a bishop who wrote the history I just mentioned to you. He was convinced by Arius. He was kind of an Arian, and yet we use him because he was an eyewitness. And pretty soon the East divides up between bishops who agree with Arius and bishops who don't. Jerusalem maintains the faith. Antioch maintains the faith. Tripoli maintains the faith. But others don't. And so now the problem is spreading. It goes beyond what the mere bishop of Alexandria can do. So he, wrote, he writes to the Pope, uh, Pope St. Sylvester, who doesn't act much in the whole story. I'm not going to mention him again. Pope St. Sylvester, his feast is the last day of the year, maybe for this reason. He was, shall we say, an extremely discreet Pope. But not everyone is going to be so discreet. So Alexander of, of Alexandria, plus a Spanish bishop called Osius of Cordoba, and who had been catechizing the emperor in the Christian faith. Remember, Constantine is the one who saw the cross in the sky and then defeated Maxentius the usurper and attributed his victory to Christ. And he was the author with the other co-emperor Licinius of the Edict of Milan in late 312, early 313, granting freedom to the church. And he's being catechized this whole time by Bishop Osius of Cordoba. Osius, it seems. And Alexander say, Emperor, we need to do something about this. And Constantine had already in, uh, taken an interest in a heresy that had, in the south of France and North Africa and had encouraged a local synod, that Council of Arles I mentioned to you. So now he's interested in doing this. And he calls it Nicaea near Constantinople. 20th of May, 325 is when, so bishops are invited from all over the world. Around 300 bishops show up. I'll get back to that number in a minute. Three or four bishops come from the West, including Osius of Cordoba, plus two legates for the Pope. That's his, the Pope's presence is through his, his legates. And the legates are always listed first, by the way. When they list the bishops, the legates come at the top. And it opens on the 19th of June is when the deliberations begin. And uh, the agenda is to deal with Arius and his new heresy about the subordination of the Son of God. A schismatic rigorist called Miletius, who refused to accept into communion people who had apostatized during the persecutions. And the dating of Easter is on the agenda too, because some local Christian communities relied on the Jewish calendar for Easter. They, they stuck to the actual calendar date of the resurrection for Easter, which moved. But I should also add that in the meantime, since the destruction of the temple, the Jews had begun to count as the equinox, the, time, the day when the sun enters into the house of Aries. And so they no longer were using the, the actual equinox the way everyone else did. And so there was a, a it was all disjointed, it was a mess. So that had to be dealt with. Now, when who convokes it? And this is where I'm going to read to you some, just to put you there, okay, reading from the source. Here we are in the, the building where in the palace of the emperor in Nicaea. 
And I'm reading from Eusebius now, so you're really, it's an eyewitness account. On each side of the interior were many seats in order, which were occupied by those who had been invited to attend according to rank. So the legates first, and then the patriarchs, if they're there, and, and all the way down to little local bishops of some place. As soon as they sit down, a general silence prevailed in expectation of the emperor's arrival. Now, I'm not going to read it to you. I'll summarize quickly. First of all, members of his family come in who are Christians. No soldiers. Everyone notes no guards. Then he shows up decked out in purple and gold with a shining crown. And yet, for all that, he looks kind of shy and intimidated as he goes in. And then he speaks. The emperor does. It was once my chief desire, dearest friends, to enjoy the spectacle of your united presence. And now that this desire is fulfilled, I feel myself bound to render thanks to God, the universal king. He calls God the universal king, and he uses the Greek word here. I read the thing in Greek earlier today, Basileos, which is the title of the emperor. So he says, well, I'm the, ki- I'm the emperor, the king on earth, and then there's the king up in heaven. He's kind of saying, I, I kind of represent him, okay? So there you see the emperor's kind of putting himself forward, and the bishop said, yes, well, thank you, emperor. Now, we're, can we get to our business now, please? And so he gives this long-winded welcome to the bishops, and then the bishops get down to work. And it starts out with, um, so the bishops, I have to talk about them. So it seems there were maybe 318. St. Athanasius says this, St. Hilary of Poitiers says it, 318 bishops, which happens to be the number of the servants of Abraham who rescued Lot. Back in Exodus, okay? So a significant number. And they're from all over. The bulk of them, 116, are from Asia Minor and Armenia. Then you have some Libyans, some Egyptians, and so forth and so on. There's one bishop you may be wondering about, St. Nicholas of Myra. Okay, ho, ho, ho. The, <laughs> um, the one who gives presents. He's not listed in, this, in the list we have, but the list we have is only 220 names. So unaccounted is another 98. So he might be among them. All I can tell you, the historian cannot assure you that St. Nicholas was there. The punch in the face of Arius, you may know the story. St. Nicholas punches him in the face. Uh, the earliest time we see that mentioned is the 14th century. But So I can't tell you it really happened. But what I can tell you is that it is in keeping with some of the riotous behavior that took place there. Okay, this was more like um, Parliament in Britain, where people are shouting at each other and saying, boo, you're lying, you heretic, get out. It was more like it was not like the U.S. Senate, where everyone sort of shuts up or speaks to an empty hall. No, this was lots of uh, hurly burly going on. Um, And in fact, one of the things that Constantine did was to calm people down. So when one bishop started to get a bit, he said, Excellency, Please modify your tone for the proceedings. Oh, yes, your majesty, I will. So that's the kind of, that's why Constantine was there. So the debate begins, and it begins with another Eusebius of Nicomedia on, uh, and he proposes Arian doctrine. He says, well, it's clear from the Bible that the son is less than the father. And he goes through, and indeed, there's plenty of texts in the New Testament which you could pluck out of their context to say that, you know, he is greater than I, that kind of thing. And so, he presents the Arian case. People whistle, indignation. Someone even grabs hold of his paper 
and tears it to shreds and makes confetti right there in front of everyone. That's kind of the assembly. So that's why I say the punch in the face fits uh, the kind of thing it was. So then he says, okay, there's still Eusebius. He, he represents the Arian party. There are at least 22 bishops in attendance who agree with Arius. So he says, okay, okay. Why? And there are all sorts of factions, by the way. There are five different factions in, in attendance. Eusebius of Nicomedia, Arian. The son is less than the father. Then there's Eusebius of Caesarea, our historian, who says, well, could we at least say that the son is created? See, he's not quite all the way. Then we have the conservative middle of orthodox bishops in faith, but they don't like innovations and they don't like rocking the boat. And so if you try to introduce a theological term that they don't know, they're going to say, well, I don't know about that. You hear the idea? I'm not going to sign up to, for that. Then we have the fourth faction, Alexander of Alexandria, with Athanasius, who was a deacon at this time, St. Athanasius, and was his uh, theological expert. And of course, Hosius of Cordoba, the great uh, Orthodox presence. That's four, but there's a fifth faction on the other side. And they're the ones who are vociferously anti Arian. How dare you say that the son is inferior to the father? Well, that sounds nice. Except they have the opposite error of believing that the Trinity is, in fact, not even divided into three persons. It's just one God who shows up as a burning bush, as a, ta as a, as a column of smoke, as a column of flame, as Jesus, as tongues of fire, as a dove but one, only one per divine person. So, of course, they're anti-Aryan, but they belong to the opposite heresy. And as an aside, Nicaea, I'm going to give the end away, of course, endorses that the, 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 the orthodox teaching that the Son and the Father are of the same substance. So that's good. Truth has one. But two different things happen, and they nearly always happen at councils. And it's good for you to know, particularly for us today. When a council declares true dogma, truth has won. Also, the faction of fallen human beings who were pushing for the declaration have won. And sometimes what they believe exceeds what the council uh, defined. Do you see what I mean? And if those people can take over, and often they do, they tend to impose more in the name of the council than what the council actually defined. Does that ring a bell at all? Okay, that happens not at every council, but there are plenty of councils where those who defended the truth believe that the council has ratified every one of their own personal opinions. You see, that happened at Vatican I. It happened, I think, at Vatican II. And it's going to happen in other councils as well. So these are the factions. Eusebius of Syria says, okay, here's a creed. And he proposes a creed. Now, what is a creed? A creed is a statement of the truths of the faith. There have been creeds from the beginning of the church. Usually, creeds are the statement that uh, those who are to be baptized memorize, so that when they're asked at their baptism, what do you believe? They can say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. And they can go through the thing, statement of faith. Okay, we'll baptize you now because you believe the truth. And those have been all over the place. And I'll get back to that. 
So Eusebius proposes a version of this, and it begins like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Okay, I'm going to continue, but keep your antennas out, your trust but verify antennas, your show me antennas, okay? I'm going to continue now. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, by whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and in earth. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven as he was incarnate was made man. He suffered on the third day, rose again, and ascended to heaven, and he shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Ghost. That's it. What's wrong with the statement of faith? Nothing, except for what it fails to say. People, no, that's not good enough. St. Athanasius, who's young and clever, says, to Alexander, his bishop, and to Osius, their ally, you cannot let this stand. The Arians are going to use that creed to say that this council did not define the complete equality of son and father. You must compel the committee to add, and he gives them the words that they need to add, and they do, and they add the following words. So I'm going to have to go back now. The only begotten of his father, and then the thing inserted, of the substance of the father, God from light, God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, or if you prefer, being consubstantial with the Father. So that's added in. And by the way, the word consubstantial, which St. Athanasius, of course, agrees with and recommends, but it does seem to be the case that the first person to propose that word for this creed was Osius of Cordova. Why? Because we find a word very much like that already in uh, a Latin theologian by the name of Tertullian, who wrote around 210. Also, just an aside, and uh, by the way, if you want to read uh, about this stuff, um, I, I think, John Henry Newman, his essay on the development of doctrine, which is the work, his kind of a mature work in a way, and also his more youthful work um, on the four, fourth century Arians, he goes through all of this. And what Newman points out, and what is good to remember, is that the word consubstantial in Greek, homoousios, had been used in the East in the 260s by those who believed that God is only one person. And they said there's only one, God is one consubstantial person and Christ is merely a manifestation of that one substance. So substance and person were kind of blended together, and that had been condemned at a local council at Antioch, which explains why some of the conservative bishops of the council were reluctant to vote for the inclusion of that one word, which we know to be so important today. But those conservative, well, it's a, it's. We've never used that word before. In fact, the only time we know it's been used before was by some heretic. I don't want it. And Athanasius and Alexander just really had to go to work with those bishops. And they convinced them. In fact, they convinced them so much that there's more that was added to this uh, creed, which we no longer say, because it's very uh, time-specific. It says, after we believe in the Holy Ghost, and whoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that before he was begotten, he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, 
or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature, or that he is subject to change or conversion. So you can see what they do, the clever St. Athanasius. He is getting the Arians by every angle. All that say this, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. So it's a very clear condemnation of Arius and all his followers and all his pomps and all his works. And they all sign, except two. Two Egyptian bishops who were completely enthralled to Arius refused to sign, and they are deposed. Um, Arius, of course, is exiled. And Eusebius of Nicomedia, the ringleader of the... Arius was not a bishop, by the way, but Eusebius of Nicomedia was. He was the ringleader of the Arians. He's the one who had introduced that wishy-washy thing. Even he signs. But he regrets it three, three months later. To his credit, he retracts his signature and is exiled. And he knew he would be exiled. So he's a heretic of, of principles in a way. So that's the end of Arianism, you might think. We'll see. Because we're not at the end of this terrible disease, this terrible heresy. But this council also had um, issued what are known as canons, disciplinary stuff. And in fact, if you want a good source for that, here's a, a pretty good book. It's called The Decrees of the Ecumenical Councils, edited by Norman Tanner, S.J. It's based on a collection that was put together for the, for the Vatican II bishops so that they would have the text of all the councils before. And uh, it exists in English in two volumes. It's a bit pricey, but it has the texts. It has all the texts of all the ecumenical councils of the church. It's in two volumes in the original languages. It has Greek. It has Latin. It has Armenian. It has um, some of the remoter languages of some of these councils, you know, when they have legates come over from Armenia. And an English translation on the facing page. So you don't have to learn all these languages. So... I'll read some of the canons here, not all of them, but just to give you a flavor. So after that statement of faith, uh, canon one is against, it says eunuchs cannot be ordained. Number two, if you cannot be ordained to the clergy right after baptism, there has to be some kind of a delay. Number three, uh, it says, uh, it says, I'll read canon three. This great synod, it says, absolutely forbids a bishop, priest, or deacon, or any of the clergy to keep a woman who has been brought in to live with him, with the exception, of course, of his mother or sister or aunt or any person who is above suspicion. That's canon three. Uh, then there's how many people need to be there to appoint a bishop. It talks about the excommunicated, how what it takes for someone who's been excommunicated to be received back into communion. Pretty harsh. And so on and so forth. Uh, there's one um, canon that you'll hear mentioned. It's uh, no kneeling at Mass uh, during, uh, from Easter to Pentecost, which is a liturgical disciplinary canon. And as often with the canons of these first seven councils, by the way, the disciplinary canons generally are local and apply only to the East. So that's a good thing to know. And these canons are not a matter of faith or morals. They're merely disciplinary and then the West can adopt them. The Pope chooses which ones he wants and doesn't. And they're merely disciplinary and they can easily be overturned. So don't let anyone tell you, oh, by the way, you're kneeling. Yes, in the third Sunday after Easter, you're not supposed to be kneeling at Mass. Well, in the fourth century and in the East, yes, that was true. But these are not eternal truths. 
So, problem solved, this heresy is gone? No. And it's surprising the extent to which the problem is far from over. In fact, it gets worse. You may ask why. We've just had a council that condemns and anathematizes. Now, that's like the worst you can do to a person in the church, Arius and his beliefs and his followers. So how could it get worse then? Well, I'll get to the nitty-gritty, but I think the overarching principle is this was the first ecumenical council that anyone had had. They, had, they didn't quite know what to do with it. And it would be very easy because Arians, as you read the history of the Arians through the fourth century, although some of them may have been simply earnestly wrong to begin with, they do become very sneaky and very mundane. And they'll say, you know, when a, when a bishop or priest or even a woman is bringing her kids to catechism and she says, the mom says, well, Father, I, I heard you told my children that there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. That doesn't seem right. The Council of Nicaea says that he's consubstantial with him. And the priest, oh, that council, madam, pay no attention. And so people, you know, they didn't have newspapers or the internet. They could be well, if Father says, I guess that's how the poison spread in the church. And you may recognize that kind of tactic, that disdain for holy things and true things. <laughs> so and so, so for, we're beyond that. That's kind of what happened. Also, that group of people who believe there's really only one person in God, they're called modalists. And they're called modalists because they believe that the one divine person presents himself in different modes. They made too much of a victory lap, shall we say. And so at the beginning, a lot of crypto-Arians would tell bishops, Excellency, there are modalists in the clergy. Really? Yes. So-and-so preached and said that there's only one divine person. Oh, I have to get rid of him then. All right. So these hidden Arians are pushing for a witch hunt. And that witch hunt starts to take on hysterical uh, uh, proportions to the extent even that you'd better say, oh, no, the son is different to the father. They're different. They're different, you see? And that's how the Aryans get back in. So that's one thing. I'm going to go very quickly here. Also, another thing is that it, the Arianism reaches the emperors. Even after, even after Cal, uh, um, Nicaea, Constantine himself isn't quite sure he understands what it was all about. And Arius is going to approach Constantine to say, you know, I'm not a heretic after all. And all I want to do is to be in communion. And if you could say a word for me, it would be nice. And the emperor says, you know, all this thought is way above what I can, well, above my pay grade. Tell you what, I'll write a letter to St. Athanasius, who by now is the Bishop of Alexandria, and I'll tell him to receive you to communion. Don't you worry. And so Athanasius knew this was going to be bad. Fortunately, Arius, before he could get there, has a bowel complaint, and it's kind of what happened to Herod and what happened to Judas, and he dies a very uh, messy, unpleasant death unpleasant to him and unpleasant also to those around. And the Arians organize. Now they've managed to, the sons of Constantine are going to turn Arian. The church is going to be, have so many Arian bishops that in the decade from 350 to 360, most of church authorities are Arian. 
This is the decade of which St. Jerome famously said, the word groaned at finding itself Arian. Now you may ask, how about the Pope? And I have good news there. The Pope at this time is called Liberius, and he doesn't give in. The Arians organize councils of their own, and they say, see, this is a negative. And there are plenty. They counsel upon counsel upon counsel, other aside. The Arians start disagreeing among themselves, of course. And then when the conversation switches over to the Holy Ghost, more disagreements. They only have one thing in common, all these different Arian sects now and factions. They all hate Nicaea. Besides that, there's not much that binds them together. At one of the councils, one of the many where St. Athanasius is condemned, he's going to be the great defender of the truth. Constantius, who's the new, uh, this is in 355. Constantius, the new emperor, is going to declare that the will of the emperor is a canon of the church, and he's an Arian. He imposes it. So he kicks and he exiles all the Orthodox bishops who were there. Athanasius, Pope Liberius is banished for refusing to condemn St. Athanasius, who was preaching the truth. Hosius, of course. Hosius is going to live a very long time. And yet another aside, because it's uh, relevant, perhaps, to some of the listeners here. There's a bishop of Sardinia, one of the big islands there, south of Corsica. His name happens to be Lucifer. Now, it's not, nothing satanic. It means light bearer. That's just his name. And he's exiled. And as the Arians continue, at one point, they are going to be able to imprison Liberius and compel him to sign an ambiguous statement of faith through threats and torture. When Lucifer sees that, he says, that's it. Heresy has filled the church. He consecrates bishops without mandate all by himself because he sees that heresy has taken over the church as he sees it. And that is going to be the beginning of a sect called uh, the Luciferians, who are going to become schismatic and break off and, as a group, never come back into the church. Even into the days of St. Jerome and St. Augustine in the 5th century, they have become a group apart, and they don't trust Rome or the church anymore. And you can kind of understand them. And I'm not going to draw the parallels that might be drawn. You can do that by yourself. So, and Paul St. Athanasius, meanwhile, is going to be exiled five times during his entire life. But we are going to get to the end of this. Um, just quick, St. Athanasius organizes a synod of his own in 362 called the Council of Confessors, where he networks and organizes things. Finally, ultimately, what's going to happen is that the Arians break off into very conflicting sects until the last Arian emperor dies, fighting the Goths, actually, <laughs> 370. Now we have Goths coming into the empire, who, ironically, the Goths are evangelized by Arian missionaries. And that's going to come back later with the Germanic invasions. They're all Arians. And we now have a new emperor called Theodosius. He's from Spain. He's Orthodox. And now the Orthodox can organize their synods, and they do so very quickly. 379, 153, just like the fish, 153 Eastern bishops, like in the hall, you know, assembled to confess the faith of the Pope. And now it's Pope St. Damasus. A lot of sees still have Arian bishops, even Milan 
has an Arian bishop, but the popes don't give in. And Damasus is tightening things up. He has St. Jerome translate the Bible anew or into Latin from uh, Hebrew and Greek, the Vulgate. Now we're in the days of St. Jerome. All the Orthodox respect Pope Damasus and this little local synod in Antioch say, we believe what Damasus believes. Then in 380, the emperor issues an edict called the Edict of Thessalonica, in which he, the emperor, so this is not a council, it's just an edict by an emperor, declares that the faith of the empire is the faith of the Pope of Rome, the successor of Peter, and that of the uh, 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 Bishop of Alexandria. And then for the next year, they convoke a, uh, a council, or the emperor convokes a council. He kicks out the Arian Bishop of Constantinople, who is replaced by St. Gregory of Nazianzen, for those of you who know that particular father of the church. This is where he, somewhat through the machinations of his friend St. Basil the Great, becomes bishop, not for long. And so this council is called that assembles all the East, and it's going to meet in the year 381. And uh, one of the things had to do with who was the true bishop of uh, Constantinople. I'm not going to get into the weeds. Now, and so this council that takes place in 381 is the council of Constantinople, the first one. 150 bishops are there. They're all orthodox. Plus 36 bishops who are not orthodox. They're Arians, but they're Arians who of a particular stripe who focus on denying the consubstantiality of the Holy Ghost with the Father. They've moved the conversation that way. And they're not allowed in anyway. They said, no, can't come in. And uh, we don't have a record. We don't have a, strictly speaking, contemporary record of the decisions of this council. But what we do have is the letter of the Synod of Constantinople the following year, writing to Pope Damasus and the bishops of the West to tell them what happened the year before. So it's kind of as good as. And it happens to follow the proceedings of a Roman synod under Pope Damasus in 378. So this is what they do. This is the time to really close all the loopholes. First thing they do, they attack modalism. No, there is not one person in God but three. It attacks the extreme Arians. The Arians, by the, or some of them at this point, had got so far as to, to say, okay, Arius had said, the son is of like or similar substance with the father. The Orthodox, that's us, say, no, no, it's the same substance. It's gold. It's like gold, gold, gold. The Arians said, no, no, it's like substance. It's like silver and tin. Tin looks like silver, but it's not quite silver. Likewise, the son is similar to the father, but not of the same substance. Well, there was a, an extreme sect of Arians who said, no, no, no. We must say that the son is dissimilar and focus on that. They're condemned. So it reaffirms that the three divine persons are consubstantial, co-eternal, and so forth. That's number one. Number two, there's another error. It's all about Christ still. There was another heresy 
which claimed, now we're dealing with Christ only, that claimed that Christ had no human soul. He merely had human body, so blood, bone, you know, skin, muscles. He had the kind of soul that's sufficient to make that body live, as in the case of plants and animals, but that the, he did not have a human rational soul, that this human rational soul was taken over by the divine word. That's a heresy. It's called Apollinarianism, because the man who invented it was called Apollinaris, and that's condemned. So, no, no, he's fully man and fully true God and true man. Don't we say that at the creed? Now, by the way, that was not the creed in Nicaea, true man. And so I have to talk about this, the creed now, and then it's eight o'clock, just one more minute. When we say the creed at mass, right? Credo in unum Deum. We call it the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. And yet, we don't have a record of it at this council. We know that this council fought the heresies that go against that, the, the statements in that creed, but we don't have a record on it. In fact, so why do we call it that? Because by the time you get to Chalcedon, the second of the two councils we look at next week, they say, this is the creed of Nicaea and Constantinople. But in the meantime, we just happen not to have that archive. And yet everyone agrees that it's from Constantinople. So it seems then that it was, in fact, the Council of Constantinople, even though we don't have the actual uh, uh, document to prove it. But later history shows, OK, everyone agrees and points to it. And then one more thing. It's canons. There's a famous canon in here, canon number three, which says that Constantinople is, has precedence over the other Oriental patriarchates. Because until then, it had been Rome, and then Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem was always last. Although it had some precedence, but it was last because it, was, it, was, it had been destroyed and replaced by a Roman colony, Elia Capitolina. This canon at Constantinople said, no, no, now Constantinople is the new Rome, it's second after old Rome. The Pope only admitted the doctrinal statements of this, letter from 382 confirming what happened at the council, and he never accepted any of the canons. In fact, you have to wait until the year 1215 for Rome to accept that Constantinople is number two. So that canon didn't make it. It wasn't accepted until then. So that's Constantinople one, And those are the first two ecumenical councils. So now things are tied up. The Son and the Father and the Holy Ghost are consubstantial and co-eternal and fully divine. And Christ our Lord is true man and true God. And it took this long for thing, all the I's to be dotted and the T's to be crossed. Not because these are new doctrines, but because there were new heresies that attacked them. And so we had to make sure that it was done. And this time, there's not going to be a lag of 50 years where heresy comes back up again. We're going to be pretty safe. These documents are going to be believed in, but the ingenuity of man is going to work on finding out new heresies. And there'll be the two great councils of the following century, the fifth century, and those are the councils with which we shall deal next week, Ephesus and Chalcedon. Thank you for your attention. Welcome back, Kelsey. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Pepino. So looking forward to the next two weeks.
All right, Dr. Pepino, are you ready for some questions? I am. I saw one of them flash by. Maybe I could address that because it's a good one. I should have said it. What is this iota? Okay, I'm going to deal with the iota. Can you see this all right? Okay. This is Greek, okay? I hope I, I put it in Roman letters, yes. So these were the two words in debate at Nicaea. The top one, homo, usios. Homo means same, and usios means substantial or of the substance. Usia is substance. Usios is the adjective. So this means same substantial or consubstantial. This is the word that Bishop Otius and Alexander and St. Athanasius are defending. Now, uh, the Arians are using the word down here, and the only difference between the two is this I here, which in Greek is iota, homoiousios. Now, homoi or homoio means similar or like substance. So that one iota made all the difference between whether the divine word, the Son of God, is equally divine, in fact, is consubstantial, or not. That little iota made a big difference, even though it is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Anyway, I just wanted to get that out there. So when people tell you it does not make an iota of difference, I mean, that's come to mean it doesn't make much difference at all. But in fact, it does make a big difference. Although, of course, I mean, don't say this, you know, when you're in line at the post office, there's no need to correct people, but just so you know, you know the general thing. Okay, that's all, Kelsey, your turn. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Pupino. This next question um, is coming from Martha. It's kind of an interesting one. Martha asks, do you say that the heresies were born of sincere attempts to clarify the faith, but unfortunately they were wrong? Or does it seem that people were trying to destroy the faith and gain some fame on their own? Well, both, I think. I mean, there are sincere heretics. You've all met them. I mean, we live in a pluralistic country. Um, But it's very hard to to determine motives. Now, if you study in greater detail the history of the fourth century, there are certain names that come up that are associated with actions that are not the actions of honest men. All right. There's um, two Western Aryan bishops who are always doing the bidding of the emperor, the name, one of them was called Ursatius, which means bearish, bear-like. And the other one was, I can't remember his name, but it was an equally nomenist omen, an equally kind of name that tells you he's not a good guy for whatever reason. Those were So there were bad men on that side. And also, I mean, when the emperor's an Arian, there's going to be a big temptation to just do what he says. And even people who knew what the true faith was, they went along with it out of weakness cowardice, or ambition. So you had all of that mixed in. And it's a big, messy, and very human story. I think there must have been some bona fide Aryans. You know, they're Aryans today. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are Aryans in their own way. In fact, if you look at the, the- theological books written by Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll have a portrait of Arius, and they'll say, this is a, here's a precursor who knew the truth. They seem, depending on which one, they seem to be sincere enough, I guess. Was Arius sincere? I don't know. It seems that sometimes the process is that you come up with a new idea as you think about things, and you, oh, I think that's right. 
And then you become in love with your own idea, and then you won't be corrected, and then you spiral out of control in pride. And that may have been what happened. I mean, I can't read his soul, but that's the kind of thing that can happen. So a bit of both. Next question. We can go ahead and take a question from someone on the panel. So Ray, why don't you go ahead? It, it seems to me that it, it's not enough just to know what the Council of Nicaea said in regards to the consubstantial nature of the first and second persons of the Trinity, but and, and very limited background here. So even your history courses and the books you we read, where's the apology for that? Where I have to go all the way to uh, uh, Augustine's Trinity to start reading. You know, hey, where did the doctrine of the Trinity come from? And the essential, this essential nature of the substances of the three persons. The histories of the council don't cover the reasons for their, you know, declarations. Where, where, you know, I think it's important to know that too. Yes. For me, where, where do you know? Where is that found? I guess that's yeah, my yeah, no, that's 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 very good. And you're going to find that mainly the sources, the sources. It's made now. The great. I'm going to focus uh, on two two men here: Saint Athanasius, of course, and also Saint Hilary of Poitiers, who was a Westerner who also did a lot of legwork for Orthodoxy, and both and they do write treatises. But really, these are men on the run, and the bulk of the work, the bulk of of, of their production in which they propose all these, this argumentation is going to be in their letter. So you'll find a lot where they're explaining what they mean. And for the, for most of it, Ray, and this is why later fathers, in a way, can, can, can have the, the limelight, a lot of what St. Athanasius is going to have to do in these letters is explain to bishops what he means by s- such terms as hypostasis and substance and essence because there's a big linguistical problem as well going on here. And in a sense, that explains why it gets worse after the council. Pre-Nicene Trinitarian theology is not always as precise as we would like it to be, in part because they didn't necessarily anticipate the problems that were going to arise with Arius. And that's why, by the way, there's a big issue. When you read the Fathers of the Church before Nicaea, for most of them, you'll find people debating, well, was he a subordinationist, meaning some sort of a proto-Aryan, or was he not? And sometimes the authors themselves seem, it's hard to reconcile their own thought because the thing hadn't been precisely enough developed for them themselves to express themselves precisely. So the divine intervention, I think, now, this is more to do with councils in general, the Holy Ghost of the Council does not necessarily ensure that the best possible presentation is made. What it does do, though, it prevents these men, bishops and pope together, in whatever way that works out historically, from saying something wrong in their definitions. And the Creed of Nicaea is a perfect example of that. They were preventing from his and in fact, they did pretty well. But then that thing is going to have to be unpacked afterwards. Now, the Arians, though, are unexcusable from this point of view. When the Arians speak after Nicaea, they know they're contradicting Nicaea, and in fact, they state it themselves. They're not trying to say, oh, we're giving you the spirit of Nicaea. No, they say Nicaea was wrong, and we're right. And Athanasius, then, his job is going to be to convince the the mushy middle made up of conservative bishops who could be timorous or maybe too conservative. They They don't want to 
have to, to, to they don't want to, some of them even said, I believe what you say, Athanasius, I just don't want to use that new word. Do you see? And so that's why it's good. So Hilary of Poitiers, he writes the history of the Arian councils. And in the course, so that's what his treatise, if you like. And in the course of that, he does defend the truth. And then the letters of Athanasius, where he's trying to convince all the other bishops to rally, and he's successful in the end. And that lays the groundwork then for the theologians of Constantinople I, or around Constantinople, or leading up to Constantinople I. I mean here the Cappadocians, St. Basil the Great, his friend St. Gregory of Nazianzen, who was the bishop of Constantinople for that short time, and the brother of, of Basil, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and others of that crew who write books like On the Holy Ghost or On the Son. And all those works, and those, Ray, I think, is what you need to go to. And there's a wonderful book. It's published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press. It's the five theological orations of St. Gregory of Nazians, of Nazians. And there's one on the Holy Ghost, one on the Son, and their speeches, and he is taking on the Arians, and there he really goes deep into argumentations as to why Arius is wrong and why Nicaea was right the whole time. And that sets the groundwork theologically then for the, for the, for the generation like St. Augustine, who's just a bit younger than them by like half a generation or a generation. So there is a lot of unpacking going on. In fact, believe it or not, the century of Arianism is also called the golden age of patristic literature. So it's both terrible and wonderful. And maybe the reason why we have such beautiful writings during that fourth century is precisely because there's such a monstrous error that's taken over the world that needs to be combated. So there is stuff before you get to St. Augustine. And just a last thing to, tell, to, to mention here, Ray, and for everyone, really, there's also a big difference in the way in which the Greeks do theology and the way in which the Latins do theology. And for us Westerners, St. Augustine is much more uh, 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 palatable in a way, uh, because he does tend to simply you know, go for, explain things logically and make his way through. The Easterners at the time, maybe because they're embroiled in the fight, there's a lot more invective and fireworks and, uh, and so forth that makes it less palatable. But there's a lot of material there, as you know. Uh, does that answer your question? I hope I haven't gone too far. Oh, no, uh, more than what I could have hoped for. Thank you. Okay. All right, you bet. Wonderful. We'll try to take one more here, but I noticed a couple questions coming in after your comment about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we do have a wonderful lecture series in our ICC library. It's called Kingdom of the Cults. So it talks about the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons and some others. So if that is something that you're interested in or want more information, again, that's Kingdom of the Cults. You can find that in our ICC library. All right, I think we'll have time for one more. And this is going back to the beginning of your talk. And so if you explain this, just remind us, but a couple people are wondering, why is it that the Council of Jerusalem, um, spoken of in Acts of the Apostles, is not considered an ecumenical council? Why do we say that the first ecumenical council was the one? Yeah, the no, that's a very good, and it's a quick, okay. Big picture. Even today, not everyone agrees on the numbering or the number of councils. If you pick up uh, even 20th century, and I'm not talking about loopy stuff, okay, like serious, real Orthodox theologians, or, uh, Catholics, uh, they'll say, well, this one's not quite, you know, they're kind of hem and whore about things. Um, 
But the reason why it's extreme is because it is, I think this is the, 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 the reason. Um, it's because they, the apostles are not, in a sense, preserving the apostolic deposit. They are forging it. Okay, when we speak of tradition of the church, there are two traditions. There's what is known as the constitutive tradition, which is what the apostles had, because they actually are themselves teaching new things. You know, the Lord is risen. I mean, that, that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, and so that's constitutive tradition. And so in a sense, they're acting here in that Council of Jerusalem. There's something, in, there's something inspired there, which does not apply to the ecumenical councils. The ecumenical councils sought out what is it? What is this faith that we have received? The apostles are not doing that. They are saying, this is the faith. You see, they're giving it. All the other councils are receiving it throughout history. So for that reason, we don't call the Council of Jerusalem or any, or indeed, I mean, Pentecost. It wouldn't it be nice to say, well, that's the first ecumenical council. The Holy Ghost is actually on their heads, you know, tongues of fire. And they're coming out and preaching. But it doesn't count as one because that is they're constituting the deposit of the faith still. Ecumenical councils sort out what that deposit is in more precise terms. That's the difference. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Well, Dr. Papino, this has been such a great start to our series. So just as a reminder, this is a three-part series. So we'll be together for the next two Tuesdays, same time, same place. Um, and Dr. Pepino, we look forward to hearing more about the councils. Thank you so much for being with us. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media. Thank you.